Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibribani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Scott Shaw, who's the president and CEO of Lincoln Tech. Scott has held other senior leadership positions in his 20 years at Lincoln Tech, including Executive Vice President and Senior Vice President of Strategic Planning and Business Development. So Scott, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks, Shib. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you first start by telling our audience a bit more about your background and what led you to joining Lincoln Tech and staying there for, for now, now about two decades? Sure. Well, I actually started off in investment banking. The organization I was with made an investment in Lincoln, and I was looking for a change to get from being on the investing side to the operations side. And Lincoln was having some financial problems. So my first role at Lincoln was actually as a CFO. So I came and joined the organization, helped kind of get their footing back on ground. And then, frankly, just fell in love with the education space. I obviously had gone to school, but never thought I'd be involved in a school. But it's certainly very rewarding to be able to really help people change their lives and get themselves established. And I stayed here. And 20 years later, I am where I am. As a fellow education entrepreneur, I'm, uh, I couldn't agree more about how gratifying it can be to run an educational organization. So can you tell us a bit more about Lincoln Tech and what, what makes it different? So we started, uh, we're actually about to enter our 75th year. So the founder of the company originally started with training vets coming back from World War II and being automotive and HVAC mechanics. And it continued to do that and expand that offering. But then in around 2000, we expanded into the healthcare sector, simply because we saw that there's a huge need with the looking to the future and seeing that population was going to be aging, that there'd be greater and greater need for healthcare professionals. And so we started offering some medical assisting, dental assisting, some of the allied health uh, curriculum. And then we were asked, frankly, by the state of New Jersey to take over a failing LPN program. And we took that over very successfully and grew that. And so now we produce uh, 50% of all the LPNs in the state of New Jersey. And we also have the same program in Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. And so now today we have uh, in total 22 campuses, but only nine of them have healthcare profession programs in them. And they're mainly situated in the Northeast since we started in New Jersey. We're kind of from Boston to Baltimore. But we do have a healthcare program down in Atlanta. We're about to launch one in Indianapolis. Congratulations. That's an incredible scale. Uh, and I actually didn't know that about the, the history of Lincoln Tech training World War II vets where they, when they return. That's pretty inspiring. Now, in a couple of the professional programs, medical assistant, LDN, LPN, was that the gamut or are there a few others you wanted to mention? Yeah, we have some other forms of medical assisting and some of the office administrative jobs. We're looking at adding other programs. We're hoping to get to the stage where we can offer an RN program simply because all of our LPNs would love to become RNs. A lot of them come to us just to be at LPNs because they can get through that program, frankly, a lot more quickly, which so gets them established. And a lot of our students are very anxious to get working faster rather than later. And so the LPN appeals to them. We've looked at some other programs over the years, uh, Surge Tech and some others, but in the markets we serve, we just didn't find it successful. So right now we're really focused on LPN, medical assisting, dental assisting. Those are really the core allied health and, and pre-licensure nursing programs that we do today. 
And can you give us a sense of the scope or the size of your like alumni pool and as well as how many health professionals you train every year? I mean, that's a remarkable stat that half of New Jersey's LPNs are, are trained through Lincoln Tech, which is incredible. Well, Lincoln Tech is a, we don't have all the stats, but what we've tried to put together in our 75 years, we estimate in total, we have probably over 350,000 graduates out there. But since we started the healthcare program well, about 20 years ago, we have far fewer. So maybe 60,000 in the healthcare profession. Well, that's incredible. And that uh, speaks to the, the title of this podcast is Raised Line for a Reason, which is how do we improve healthcare capacity? And clearly, you know, you've helped train 60,000 healthcare professionals. So going into, into COVID, you have 22 campuses distributed across 14 different states. Wearing just the first, the educational provider hat, how has COVID affected Lincoln Tech's operations? Have, has it accelerated some of your transition to online learning, or maybe you were already doing a lot of that before? I think our audience would love to hear those changes. Right now, it feels good as we went through it, but when it just started, uh, we were all a bit in shock. We are known for being a hands-on training and educational provider, and so to have that taken away from us and being forced to go 100% online for a period of time was quite a shock. But the good news to me was really the creativity and the adaptability of both the faculty and the students that we were able to really get up and running in about 10 days. And we were fortunate because we did have all the building blocks in place already. All, all of our nurses already got laptops and many of our medical assistants already had laptops. We were using Canvas as our learning management system. And so we had something there to scale very quickly. And we did have two small blended programs that we were operating. So we had dipped our toe into it. So we were familiar and had all the, I'll say the infrastructure to run online. But if I were to have said to the organization, you know, next week, we're going to be hundred percent online. You know, we still would be fighting today. Like, oh, that's crazy. We can't do it, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that we had to do it really forced a lot of change. And it's really, uh, I think, opened all of our eyes to what can be done. And so I'm really proud of the organization, how they responded. Really also very impressed by the students because online learning is more challenging. Now, our online learning is, a little, is different because there's lots of forums out there. And we're basically, most of it is live similar to what we're doing today. So there are some asynchronous aspects to the learning, but most of it, we're trying to still keep the student-teacher relationship and try to keep people more engaged. And, and that's how we've been doing it. You know, we do have to get better because as I said, we weren't planning to do this and we were forced to do this, but it's turned out to be far better than I thought. We're also realizing a lot of students appreciate, frankly, the flexibility that online gives them as we look to hopefully eventually have COVID behind us, whenever that is, we're going to continue to offer blended learning so that today, the way that our programs are structured, we offered an accelerated curriculum. Students usually come to our campus four or five days a week for four or five hours a day. And that's a pretty big commitment when you might have a job and you also might have a family to take care of. So going forward, we will offer blended where we're not sure if it'll be 25 or 30% blended, but that will enable students to come to campus maybe one or two days less which cuts down on maybe childcare, gives them maybe an extra day to work and just builds them some greater flexibility. So while the switch to distance learning was traumatic uh, at first, I think we're gonna end up in a much better place when it's all said and done. 
Yeah, I think the forcing function is something we've heard from a lot of different groups, not only educational providers like yourself, but healthcare organizations that were forced to do telehealth and would have taken them a long time to change the behaviors or, or even know what they're capable of. You know, I'm curious how, how this has affected um, kind of your applications or enrollments, just because, you know, right now, 11 million people in the U.S. are still unemployed and people, you know, may not want to go back to the, first of all, their jobs may not come back in retail and, and other sectors, transportation. But even if they do, this is exposed that, hey, maybe these are not the, the, the most secure jobs long term. So we'd love to hear kind of two things. One is like, what's the profile of someone who, who applies to become a medical assistant or an LDN? They may be different, but are they working adults, like second career, like anything you can provide there? Number two is like, how do you think COVID has impacted the interest in the, the, the health professional careers you guys offer? Sure. So our, for in the healthcare sector, the average age is around 26. So these are individuals who were probably working somewhere else. And as you just described it, we're probably doing something that was a entry-level position, but not something that's really an entry-level career. And they usually have a family of some kind. And so they are needing to support the family while also trying to change their lives with a new career. And so they come to us Usually in the healthcare sector, it's probably is majority female in our programs, just as an aside on the male side, on the, sorry, on the auto and skilled trades is about 95% male and only 5% female. We're trying to get more females in that sector, but uh, they tend to be the best students. We just can't seem to attract enough. But on the healthcare side, we're probably about 80% female and about 20% male. Uh, but again, they, they are these uh, adults. And since the pandemic and actually prior to pandemic, I mean, we've seen an increase in enrollment. But to your point, we've definitely are hearing now with unemployment higher, more people are coming because they are looking for that job security. And they know that, especially if you go in to become an LPN, you can get any form of nursing. You can get a job anytime, anywhere in the United States. And they're seeing that all these people are employed during this pandemic. So that's also reassurance of this is a good field to go into. And so while many people might have thought, boy, do I really want to be on the front line facing this uh, you know, horrific a situation we're in, instead of scaring people away, we're definitely seeing that it's attracting people that really, really, if you're obviously going to healthcare, you have a passion for people. And so they're definitely bringing more people to us that want to make a difference and feel like being part of the healthcare system is a great way for them to have not only a career, but also make a difference in the world. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we, we mostly are on the supplemental side where we have an audience of millions of current and future healthcare professionals, mostly medical, RN, NP, PA, dentistry, et cetera. And we, they use us as a supplement for their curriculum and test prep. But for end-to-end -end training, like what you all offer, it's very interesting to me just because I think so many of these folks, as you mentioned, maybe they don't want to work at Amazon anymore uh, in the warehouse and instead want to go work in, uh, work in a skilled nursing facility. You know, what, what role do you all play in terms of the employment aspect? Like, do you work directly with employers to place them? And what are you hearing from the employers? Because also one thing we did here was that during the middle of the pandemic, there were people in healthcare losing their jobs just because, you know, like medical assistance of primate, of, of surgical uh, care centers Systems were shut down, were yeah. shut down temporarily, but they've come back. Yeah. We do help with placement, surely, at the end of the day, 
our success is tied to our students' success. So we're constantly focused on getting more students to graduate and getting more students to be placed. And our placement rates is around the 70% level in the, in the healthcare sector. It would be higher, but for whatever reason, some students just don't want to go to work after going to school. Don't know why, but that's their decision, not mine. But what we're hearing from employers is that there is still big demand, but there are a lot of changes or challenges right now. There's, it's a bit bumpy from the standpoint that, as you mentioned, not all clinical sites are open. Doctors' offices have been shut down. Uh, some of those doctors then may have put their employees on furlough or maybe even had to, had to um, eliminate their jobs. But for the most part, uh, the vast majority of our students, from what we hear, are staying employed and have jobs and opportunities uh, going forward. And I just think that's going to continue because the, the demand is out there. I mean, <laughs> we can't stop the process of getting older. And there's more and more of us uh, that would like me with more and more gray hair out there. We need good people to take care of us. So I think if anyone going into healthcare has a, a great long-term future. What I've been hearing more and more too is people maybe start as a medical assistant or they start as an LPN and then they view that as just the entry point to then like continue educating themselves. You mentioned wanting to create an RN program as a result. Do you see that? Do you see people who go through your program start as an MA and then they come back to Lincoln Tech to get their LPN? Is that something that's fairly common or it's a kind of more? It's not fairly common that they'll come back to us to get, if they're an MA to become an LPN. But I do know that from our surveys we've done, probably 99% of the LPNs all want to be RNs. Now as to whether or not they all can make it to be an RN is uh, to be determined, but that's their goal is to be an RN. And so that's why we're really hopefully trying to get this RN program in New Jersey because based on all the statistics we look at, New Jersey is one of the third highest deficits of nurses in, in the country. We can help accelerate and bring more capacity and the students can then transition from LPN to RN. I, I would bet that once we have an RN program, those that haven't already become RNs who are LPNs uh, will definitely uh, try to come back to us. Got it. it. Makes sense. One other thing, like aspect of things that have changed because of COVID, is the government, right? Like they've accelerated some of the things they've done, and you know we've been talking to, for example, the Oregon State Board of Nursing, and like I know that a lot of these boards of nursing and health professional regulation regulatory bodies have had to kind of waive requirements or make it possible for an RN to finish their clinical training while actually being on on staff, graduating early. You know, what are your thoughts on like lasting changes that the regulatory boards may be making to make it easier for us all to raise line and improve healthcare capacity? Well, I, I would say Oregon, if they're doing that, is the minority because I'm finding that the boards of nursing are very slow to react to ch the, ch the rapid change that we're all facing. And the biggest challenge we have, or our students have, is the clinical sites. Uh, while things are open, uh, some of the clinical sites have cut back on how many people they'll accept because they're obviously concerned about bringing in the virus into their environment. And so that's, that's impacting us. And in certain states for a while, a lot of the clinical sites were closed. And so we have gone back to the boards of nursing seeking a temporary, allow us to use simulation more so. But there seems to be, from what I understand from our nursing professionals, a study that was done, I don't know how many years ago, that kind of limits the simulation capabilities up to only 50%. And I think that while I might understand that in a period of time, a greatest need of getting more people into the healthcare profession to have a roadblock that's going to slow down the number of people getting into the healthcare profession doesn't seem to be the right decision. And so it would be nice if the boards of nursing were becoming more receptive to even more 
simulation, at least for a temporary basis until things got back to normal so that more people could graduate and get into the workforce and, and help more people because uh, this bottleneck, there already was a shortage. It's gonna create a greater shortage unless we can overcome this. Especially because I mean, every year the simulations get more robust. Definitely seen a lot. Like one one guest coming up on Ray's line is someone who started a, a surgical training company that's completely in VR, and it's remarkable the st- type of stuff that they've created. Which I'm sure when these rules and when that study was done a couple of years ago, it may not have been as high fidelity as it is today. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm hoping that they'll get there. But boards of nursing aren't known for rapid change. Let's cross our fingers. Maybe there'll be some national mandates or, or uh, changes coming up. One other thing like, that we pay a lot of attention to at Osmosis is student debt. So the median student debt of a graduating med student is $200,000. Very expensive for, to go to medicine. They're paid a lot, but it takes a while to pay off that student debt. There are innovative programs like income share agreements or placements where the employer pays for the student to, to be placed. I'm, I'm curious how you guys view that as a way to innovate or impediment for students to, to get into healthcare careers. Yeah, well, it's definitely, uh, I think debt across the board is impediment for all, everyone going into, going back to school and people should carefully look at that situation and make sure that they truly understand why they're going to school, why they're taking on the debt and what are the true outcomes that they could expect uh, once they get employed. You know, for us, we're constantly looking at that. And frankly, as a for-profit school, there are a lot more rules and regulations on us than there are on traditional schools to ensure that that happens. But for us, the average student leaves Lincoln with about $13,000 worth of debt. So certainly not a small number, but not anywhere near 30,000 that a traditional person leaves from a bachelor's program. Now, granted, these are uh, you're, you're coming out with an LPN in that case, which isn't as high as let's say an RN, but you could be making 40, $45,000 right off the bat. And so paying back a $13,000 loan is very doable. And if you're a good negotiator, given the demand, you can probably get your new employer to kick in a thousand or $2,000 signing bonus to help you know, make that number even less. Sounds like there could be some uh, some education around that, if not already, in terms of career placement and how to negotiate your first contract. So I, I know we're coming up in time, but I had a, just a couple more quick questions. The first is, you know, what are some lasting changes you think will have to happen to the U.S. healthcare system as a result of COVID? Well, I think that they're going to have to expand how people can get into it, first of all. So I think that there, there are certain changes taking place, like in the state of New Jersey, they're requiring that all nurses and hospitals be BSNs which is great, I guess, is that adds better quality from what their research tells them. But it's also narrowing the number of students, not students, number of people that could work in those institutions. And so I think that schools or hospitals are going to become a little more flexible in their thinking. That will also allow more, I'll say, uh, less expensive employees that can add a lot of value and provide a lot of great service to their constituents into the various organizations. So I think I think there will be constant change just as you know PAs are becoming more popular. That's kind of an interim layer in, in the healthcare profession. I think that boards of nursing hopefully will become a little more responsive because when rapid change like this occurs, they just need to be thinking a little more proactively of how they can ensure that the supply of people coming into the healthcare field remains constant. So I haven't seen anything that, as we just were talking earlier, for that to happen, but I'm hopeful that maybe something like that will happen. 
Yeah, those are important changes. I know for, for hospitals to, to get magnet status, one of the criteria is the RN to BSN ratio, which I agree like could in the age of COVID could be limiting as opposed to freeing right now. Another question is what advice would you give to someone considering a career in healthcare? You know, obviously COVID has attracted many of them to healthcare careers, but it's also scared some people away, the risks inherent in being on the front line. So we'd love to hear what advice you'd give to your students. Sure. I think that most of the students coming to us are really want to make a difference. And healthcare is a way that an individual can make a difference in people's lives and in their local communities. And it's something that I think is well respected. I think that this whole COVID situation, frankly, has raised the profile of all healthcare workers or first line responders. And I don't see why that will ever go away. And so I think that's if you want to be in a, in a career that's well respected with long term job opportunities, uh, there's really nothing better, frankly, than, than healthcare. As far as specific advice, you know, one of the things that we constantly hear from employers and it's something we're trying to incorporate into our curriculum, but is a little more challenging, is it's, it's just not a matter to know the technical skills. Uh, everyone's asking for soft skills, and that kind of runs the gamut of a lot of different things. But we hear everything from uh, just having a more professional attitude and look, making sure that you show up uh, on time and every day, making sure that uh, you have everything as basic as good communication skills, whether that's phone skills or now more and more people are texting. But when you're interacting with patients, having unclear information go back and forth just adds a lot more anxiety and stress to the patient and to the situation. And so being able to communicate well, gain the patient's confidence and demonstrate your competency and professionalism will go a long way to make you a successful healthcare provider. That is very consistent with things we've heard. And one reason we've, been, we've also invested in soft skill, not only soft skill training, but also selection, right? Because there are definitely people like top of the funnel, maybe like people who come from customer success careers at retail outlets who could already have that inherent ability to communicate and relate to, quite frankly, very angry, angry customers by the time they arrive at a retail desk. Yeah, no, it's, and we hear it across the board for all of the industries that, that we serve. So I'm not quite sure. In this age of everyone having smartphones and instant communication, it seems like communication, though, ends up being one of the top ones that everyone mentions as that's something that needs improving. Well, my last question for you is, uh, is there anything else you'd like to be able to share with our audience about anything we, we didn't get a chance to discuss? I think that we, we touched on a lot of the, the key issues. Again, I think that the last thing, which is also pretty common today that everyone talks about is, and this current situation just reemphasizes that, our education never stops. It's truly going to be lifelong learning. If you're not learning new things, not learning how to adapt, you'll hurt yourself in the long run because the world's very dynamic now and things are changing at a more rapid pace as well. And so you, you'll be very well suited if you constantly have that sense of curiosity curiosity and discipline to really learn new things and stay abreast of things so that instead of uh, getting left behind, you're there at the forefront. Yeah, very, very good advice. Thank, thank you for bringing that in. So with that, Scott, I mean, I'd like to really thank you for taking the time to be with us on Raise Line, as well as uh, more importantly, for the work that you've done to Raise Line at Lincoln Tech and, and educate tens of thousands and soon to be hundreds of thousands of future healthcare professionals. Great. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity again. And with that, I'm Shiv Guglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line since we're all in this together. Take care.
For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>